Irish Balance podcast for 2020. If you are a regular listener, then you'll know who I am. But just in case you're not, my name is Dr. Kira Kelly. I am a medical doctor specialising in public health medicine. I'm in the first year of a specialist training scheme for public health medicine working in Galway in Ireland. I also run the blog, The Irish Balance, and you can find me at The Irish Balance, all underscore on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And you'll find my blog, theirishbalance.com, at that exact uh, location online and I'm sure uh, lots of you have gone back into previous episodes and you're coming back for the latest one today. In case you haven't seen what previous episodes I've done so far, I've done lots of topics on my own and I've also done lots of great interviews with some fantastic guests on topics from mental health to nutrition to yoga to cooking to um, meditation and mindfulness, lots of different topics. So do have a listen and I look forward to seeing what you think of the episodes. So we're back. It's 2020. Happy New Year to everybody. I just wanted to do a little quick intro to today's episode, which is all about public health nutrition. And I just wanted really to say Happy New Year to you all and thank you for being regular listeners on this podcast and very welcome to new listeners. My life in the last six months has been quite busy. I have moved out of my family home in Dublin. I have started a new job, moved to a new city into a new apartment so there's been a lot happening and the podcast episodes I just haven't been able to record them as regularly as I would like to. Now um, I did have to make a decision about whether I would record them as I could and share them as I could uh, which is what I'm doing as opposed to saving them all up and it's just that between myself my own schedule and the schedule of my guests I want to get on the podcast it can be a bit tricky to get everyone you know in a weekly slot so what I've decided to do is share podcast episodes as I'm able to record them and it's a little bit ad hoc but I do hope that you guys enjoy them as much as I enjoy recording them. And just to let you know in today's episode I do an introduction to the guest in the actual recorded conversation itself so I won't do that at the minute. It's all about public health nutrition with Jenny Rusborough who is at hellohealthyu underscore on Instagram. The Skype quality on this call was um, very slightly off for only a couple of moments within the entire conversation. So if you do catch a little bit of a dodgy part, keep going. I promise it doesn't last. And overall, I think it was an amazing podcast episode. And I'm so grateful to Jenny for giving her time to the podcast as my guest. So hope you enjoy. Um, yeah, let's get into the episode. Hi guys, hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are a new listener to this podcast, you're very welcome. And if you are a regular listener, then you're very welcome back. And I hope you're excited for a brand new episode. So it's been a while coming getting a new episode out to you guys. But this is the first episode on the podcast for 2020. Work has been really busy for me in my new job in public health. So I've had to kind of let the podcast take a backseat. But I'm so excited to be back recording for this episode. This week's guest is UK registered nutritionist and head of nutrition of the Jamie Oliver Group, Jenny Rossborough. Jenny's background is on Instagram at hellohealthyu underscore. Um, Jenny has in the past worked as campaign manager at Action on Sugar and in child and family nutrition, designing and delivering uh, evidence-based weight management uh, treatment prevention programs for families, delivering the UK MEND program, which stands for Mind, Exercise, Nutrition, Do It, uh, to health, education and social care professionals nationally and internationally. And I've been following Jenny on Instagram for quite a while now, and I really always look forward to her, uh, her posts and learn so much from them. 
we share a passion for public health, which is great. And we all, I think, talk a lot about the importance of a healthy lifestyle for our short and long term health. But we often forget how significantly our environment can influence that. And that is so important when we talk about diet and nutrition. So, Jenny, welcome to the Irish Balance podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Finally, no problem at all. Finally, yeah. In case the listeners aren't aware, it's been a long while. Myself and Jenny have been trying to do this since, I think, November, maybe? Yes, a little while. <laughs> yeah. Life is busy. What can we do? It's tough. <laughs> um, Jenny, I'd love if you could tell the listeners about your background um, to, so far in terms of your career and kind of how that's got you to where you are today. That's a big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you did a great intro to it. But um, I really started, I, quite, I guess I've always kind of worked in public health. Um, I started at the MEND program at the beginning of my career, which is, well, actually before that, I did a bit of personal training for a bit. And actually through that, I met a school nurse um, who was delivering these MEND, um, MEND programs, which stands for Mind mm. Nutrition, do it. And um, I did personal training. So I initially studied sports science um, and then went on to do um, nutrition. So mm. I guess I was trying to bring them both together and just practically apply for a little bit but my passion was more the nutrition side of things so anyway I started delivering these local like kind of healthy lifestyle programs um, and then kind of progressed on to working at head office and then writing some of these programs and delivering training to health professionals across the country and then we adapted them for North America um oh wow yeah which is great but a lot of traveling um back and yeah. forth I did all that for quite a few years um and that program was great in that um, I worked within this multidisciplinary team of um, registered nutritionists, dietitians, clinical psychologists and health psychologists, exercise specialists and academics. So it was a really good start to the career because you, it's always really important to kind of have that um, exposure, I suppose, to the different professions. So, you yeah. know, you're, not, you're never kind of work in silo. Um, and. Yeah, so we had families um, attend the programme and it, it was weight management for the older kids, but it really was just healthy lifestyle and support. And it was behaviour change and nutrition education um, and then kind of making physical activity fun um, and feasible as well. But after mm. that, I started working at um, a campaign group called Action on Sugar based at Queen Mary University in London. And um, the interesting switch there was the Action Sugar Group is very much about policy and what the government can do and what the um, food industry can do to improve the nation's health. So it was very much kind of top down, whereas with the MEND programmes, it, it was the opposite. It was like grassroots level. Um, and I just kind of felt like MEND was great for the families that we could get through the door. It would be, you know, successful. But we couldn't get access to everyone. There's lots of different barriers, you know, getting in the way to these types of programs for some families. So what can we do to almost improve the health of people who aren't necessarily engaged in their own health or aware of the foods that they're eating and that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, and the acknowledgement of action on sugar as well is very much about the fact that even if we are really health engaged, the environment that we live in makes it really, really difficult for us to kind of maintain um, a healthy diet. So I was campaign manager there and we did lots of kind of working with food industry, um, lots of calling out of food industry, actually kind of highlighting um, sort of best and worst practice um, in the field. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, that um, that kind of press element really put pressure on companies and it and it it worked like that um, was a big kind of driving force for, for some of the change that we saw. Um, and also just kind of 
working well talking to government to get them to implement kind of different strategies for public health as well um and then I did a lot of work one of the big areas of work there was on um the sugar tax which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about um Mm. and and so I worked with lots of kind of other organizations as well within that role and that was Diabetes UK, Cancer Research, British Heart Foundation, so lots of those others, and also the Jamie Oliver group. So I'd worked with um, Jamie Oliver and all the people kind of in his in his um, work, and so knowing them, I then there was a, a new job um, came available, head of nutrition, and so I joined and took that job, very much kind of focusing on the campaign side still that I was doing action on sugar, um, but then also in that role it's much broader because it's um well for a nutrition job it's it's so so broad which can be it's really exciting really because you get exposed to all the different areas so whether it's sort of like retail or recipe development books and tv and public health messages and the campaign so it's so broad um but yeah my kind of link into that was the the campaigning policy area such a varied background (laughs) yeah thread throughout it which has really been about kind of public health and child obesity um yeah fantastic and can I ask how did you get started on social media then oh like (laughs) I think it was one of those things like my friends were doing it (laughs) so I just you know I just joined it I have absolutely no um strategy or big focus on social media if I'm honest (laughs) um my yeah my media is a pretty um poor account compared to a lot of what what people do um because it hasn't it hasn't really been ever my priority but Mm. I do think it's brilliant in terms of just keeping in touch with people in our our field um seeing what everyone else is doing so good for lots of reasons well I can speak for myself and I know plenty follow you I always learn so much from your posts and I think you're right like I think it's very hard to communicate that to followers but we try so hard with our social medias, but it is in our day job as well. And I suppose there is an element of what you do in your day job is where you're really trying to inform change, um, which yeah. is why it can be so hard to, you know, keep. I, I'm the exact same with social media. Like I try to have some sort of process or strategy in place and it goes to pot every time I try and make a plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it just ends up not not being the priority, doesn't it? So anything that ends up on there is probably something that's on my mind. And um, yeah, it's kind of just an added bonus <laughs> rather yeah. than the focus much but yeah there's lots of people doing really really great things and I know it's beneficial to kind of the wider public to have actual health professional voices um giving credible evidence-based messages so it's, it's great that there's lots of people on there definitely definitely and I love how you've kind of I suppose outlined your background there it's nice you, you just described it so well like moving from downstream to upstream that's kind of similar to how I went from hospital medicine to public health medicine and I think yeah. it, there is a huge benefit to being at the grassroots level and being at kind of the cold place of what's going on and seeing yeah. those barriers and then being part of an upstream process to try and take them away. I think it's really beneficial perspective. Totally agree. Yeah. Even just I've learned with things in like tone of voice and how we frame things like it's very different if you've never kind of worked with with the people on the, on the ground, um, you know, mm. to kind of sometimes understand the impact that some of these broader top um, top down kind of messages and media kind of lines and headlines um have so I definitely think that yeah I agree that helps yeah 
So the one of the biggest topics that I want to touch on in this episode is uh, something I've tried to bring up a good bit on my Instagram. But again, time is always the rate limiting factor in doing proper posts on this. But it's our modern mm. food environment. And I think a lot mm. of people listening might be kind of vaguely aware, but maybe not fully aware of how much our food environment has changed over the past few decades. Mm. Um, could you kind of outline for us what are the biggest changes that we've seen? Yeah, I think just generally, like how we eat now is just completely different to how we ate we um, back back in the day. Um, yeah. A lot of the foods that we have on the shelves now are kind of ultra processed foods. Um, you know, the packaged foods. Um, we know that portion sizes have really gone up. We know that um, you know for a long time the amount of sugar and salt in these products were going up. They're cheaper ingredients. Um, <laughs> this, at the same time, we've seen increase in um marketing and promotions on these types of foods are the tactics to get us to try and buy these types of foods and um and then you look on the high street we know that there's still an increase in the fast food chains on the high street um particularly in certain areas like socially deprived areas um and we're eating out a lot more so most of the way that we eat has changed there's a lot of convenience um around the way that we eat because of um, busier lifestyles and just, you know, the fact that women are working more, longer days. Um, but I think we're now in this cycle that's really difficult to break where you've got food industry saying that they're responding to consumer demand um, by mm. producing convenient foods. But the consumer demand really has been led by the food industry. You know, consumers want what's available and what they know and we've got used to eating in a certain way so I'm particularly interested at the moment at you know we can change um foods we can reduce the salt in them we can reduce the sugar in them um and we definitely definitely need to do that but what I'm quite interested in is how do we actually get people to go back to eating more whole foods and I don't mean that in kind of a really you know privileged fancy way there's definitely a place for the ready meals and and all yeah. the rest of it and the convenience food there's a place for it but we do know there's get, we're seeing more and more evidence around the impact of these ultra processed foods um, and how, you know, particularly interesting recent study, how, you know, it, it leads us to kind of consume much more calories when we eat food in a certain way that has been you know, ultra processed, um, which I think we need to bear in mind. So even if even if we have two different kind of dietary patterns that are matched for the micronutrients, um, mm salt we know actually I don't know if salt was part of that but with the micronutrients um if it's more kind of an ultra processed format then we know that um you know it's, it's through a randomized control trial so it's just one study that was okay. just really interesting to see that there was um we ate a lot more calories 500 more a day I think it was um yeah so so yeah I think there's lots of things happening there's lots of things that have definitely changed but I'm definitely thinking now about how we can kind of bring it back a bit yeah Reverse. yeah and does that come down to the palatability Jenny like I mean that sounds like a really interesting study I'll have to look out for it um but is it like in yeah. we talk about obviously there's levels of processing in like in different foods and I think people often talk yeah. about processed foods and forget that something like pasta is processed but that's perfectly okay to sit down in a bowl of pasta versus things that are more intensively or ultra yeah. processed um like how yeah. are we how are we categorizing those things yeah so there is a categorization for it um and and, and and there are some anomalies in it, definitely. 
Um, but with the ultra process, it's, you know, the food is rarely in its kind. So processed, you know, it might have been, it, it might have been um, lots of food, like you say, is processed to an extent. It might be life, 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 life. Uh, it's whether the food, foods in it are not really in their, you can't really recognise them in their natural form, but also like the added fat or salt or sugar um, mm. as well. Mm. And so what I've noticed, which is quite interesting as well over the last few years, is there's a lot of backlash about talking about processed foods because, you know, we don't want to demonise foods in the way that people are eating. We never want to make people feel bad. We know that there's a place for these ready meals. There's a lot that are, you know, really balanced and really helpful. And, you know, lots of people, we rely on these types of foods. Um, and it's important that we eat, obviously. But so I do think it is fair to talk about the distinction between the processed foods and the ultra processed foods. But I just think we're kind of it. I find that we're so scared about talking about all these things and we do need to be careful about how we put the message across that almost we're, we're forgetting or undermining the impact that it's having because it might not be on us necessarily or, or even on social media within our our kind of echo chamber and social media but a lot of the work that I do now and learn about now and I'm part of now is kind of much broader and it's in, in pockets of area of deprivation that people aren't really exposed to and in those situations, it all is a real, real issue. Um, and there's lots of factors, you know, driving people towards these certain foods as well. So with the food environment um, work that I do, I feel really strongly about, you know, um, food industry, the, the kind of narrative that they, you know, might produce healthy food, less healthy food. And it's all about a choice when actually a lot of the time our choice is heavily influenced by many different factors. Yeah, I absolutely, I totally know what you mean. I'm actually, I'm trying not to interrupt too much because I think I keep nodding and saying yes. And I think, I think the Skype is a little bit affected by that. So apologies to the listeners if they can hear that too. But I'm like nodding emphatically. I'm like a nodding dog on the car with everything you're saying. I, I think there's two, there's two points you mentioned that I um, just think are so valid in particular. I think I've noticed that as well. It's become very difficult to raise topics around nutrition or to discuss topics around nutrition on social media I suppose, yeah. because as you say, we shouldn't be attaching any moral weight to foods. But at the same time, yeah. we we do have to, I suppose, have the conversation in an appropriate way. And it's becoming increasingly hard to have those conversations, I think. Um, yeah. And the second thing I had it in my head there um, was around, yeah, food industry marketing. So we had a recent um, alcohol action event in Dublin that I was able to go to. And there was a professor of business from a university in Dublin here who spoke about tactics used by the alcohol industry and I'm so used to kind of hearing about the food industry but it really just opened my mind to the the level of budget and the level of I suppose resource that these companies have to market the food and market the products market the beverage it really is fascinating when you compare that to what let's say an average um, public health budget might be it really doesn't compare yes definitely so there's lots of information on that actually even you know with food about the spend for fruit mm. and veg advertising versus the the packaged and, and the much less healthy um products but i actually with the alcohol i've been thinking about that a bit because we um so as part of some work with transport for london so the mayor's office they you know took a bold step and they announced that they were banning the advertising of foods and drinks high in fat sugar and salt um on the tube so well on the tube but also across kind of london transport um 
which was a great step because we know that marketing impacts as much as it's argued that it doesn't. They, they spend a lot of money on it because it does <laughs> um, for lots of different ways, like it normalizes certain foods. It kind of provides that reassurance factor um, for people and it ties into people's emotions as well. Um, and what I've noticed and it's such, you know, with policy stuff, it is a bigger it's a, it's a bigger game. So you have to take lots of small steps and lots of small wins but with like lots of the food ads coming down you know you you do notice more and more the alcohol ones and that's the next thing and it and it was because to get those policies across the line actually a big focus was on child um you know child nutrition and children being targeted at um as a priority so um yeah alcohol is definitely an interesting one but that kind of marketing work is also extended into a 9 p.m watersheds are campaigning so that we don't so that children are exposed to less adverts for example yeah um, that would be that would be on tv but also we know that we need similar measures online and the reason for that is that we um there are marketing restrictions for child like for these high fat sugar salt foods and drinks for children but it's when children make up 25 percent of the audience or more that would be seen as a, a child kind of program for example um, but we know that there are lots of programs like X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, where children um, of a certain age might not make up the majority of the audience, so less than 25%, but still hundreds of thousands are exposed. And then you, you notice that those particular programs, the adverts are saturated with just the majority of food. Um, and so there's other ways of targeting um with marketing so all of that has been out for public consultation and it's in the government hands to come out and say what they're going to do um in the absence of food industry kind of being responsible um of their own accord but we're waiting for that <laughs> yeah i think it it's it is it's just so interesting i mean one of the things that the um business professor from from trinity college in dublin at that alcohol event said was it to be she basically outlined a couple of examples but of how certain alcohol brands almost use I suppose moral ideals or um, kind of hero stories in how they advertise so if you think about some of like your favorite ads like a lot of Irish people are familiar with Guinness obviously but there have been some really clever ads about like an Irish man coming home I think Michael Fassbender was in it and you it's hard to forget the ad and it's a really it's a real feel-good ad it's like the Heineken or no it's Budweiser at Christmas like the horses and things like that and it's almost like a hero's journey and you associate that then with the product. Um, and there's definite yeah. examples of that with food as well. Um, I mean, they're really clever, these marketing Very people. clever. Like, they're really clever. And another kind of big one that was really in your face over Christmas was the, the Coca-Cola, um, Father yeah. Christmas Coca-Cola ads. And despite the the, the TFL bans, the, um, this Coke was kind of advertised all over the tube kind of barriers but with a small kind of reference to Coke Zero, because it's obviously sugar-free, it can be advertised, but the whole yeah. essence of branding is just red Coke. Like, that's what's reinforced, that, you know, your favourite are the most popular product. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, work to be done still in marketing. We do get lots of frustrating kind of lines from um, the Advertising Standards Association where they'll say that, you know, that they they have reduced advertising of food and drinks, but like health in children hasn't improved for example but they they haven't overall they reduced it on tv maybe but they've just transferred it to other platforms so online is obviously a huge area now where children are exposed to these ads mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and i suppose that whole idea of i suppose we have to take action because i mean at the end of the day industry wants to make money so 
they're probably not going to do a lot of it voluntarily or restricting that kind of thing voluntarily. And that does that brings me on to the next bit I want next kind of topic I wanted to ask you about, which was uh, something that I'm increasingly aware of as someone who's just moved into public health and as a doctor who obviously, like, as you know, we don't get a huge amount, uh, to put it lightly, of nutrition training as part of our undergrad. <laughs> um yeah. and there's obviously challenges as regards nutrition um at the individual level but then public health nutrition is something that I'm very exposed to and was part of my master's last year and I suppose the different issues that arise um kind of stood out to me when we talk about dietary advice for the individual versus the population level so yeah I mean I was just I suppose I was wondering if we could dive into that a little bit and I suppose the reason I want to is because I think public health can often be accused particularly when we mm-hmm. talk about um in I suppose soft drinks levies or sugar taxes kind of that yeah. public health as a nanny state type of um argument yeah. and yeah. I was wondering if you could kind of explain to listeners I suppose those differences between trying to give dietary advice to an individual and to a population and just the challenges that that you can face in that context yeah the nanny state argument obviously I've heard a lot yeah <laughs> uh, in, my career, in my career but I think um the way I see it, so it's about kind of government intervening and people being told, you know, what to eat and, and the rest of it. But we are being told what to eat. And that is by the food industry. If you look at the balance of foods out there, you look at the way they're marketed, you look at the ones that are promoted and more affordable. We are already being dictated to about what we eat. Like mm. that is a fact. Um, but it's just by the food industry. Um, and who would you rather nanny if someone has to nanny? Um <laughs> government and health professionals probably are thinking about what your children are eating versus um, profit drivers so you know there has to be that there has to be an element of regulation if food industry aren't going to take control into their own hands and I think a lot of them struggle to do that because the good ones end up getting penalized financially um, and the other ones don't but anyway bugbear I'm going off so Public health nutrition versus individual. Um, yeah, they are really different with public. I mean, there's no way that we could provide individual nutrition advice for every single person in the country. Like that's a fact. Nor do we really need to. So there are public health messages. But within that, it is about kind of promoting not, you know, it's not prescriptive exactly what and how much everyone should eat every day. But it's dietary patterns that are encouraged. Um, and then people obviously go about that in a way that kind of is suitable for them. Now, if um, they're obviously designed for a healthy population, if someone has a particular health requirement or um, health need, then they would then get individual support, um, which usually in nutrition would be more of a clinical need and then would be by a dietitian versus kind of a registered nutritionist who would do much more kind of population level. But yeah, it is, it's, it's an interesting dynamic um, because some people will complain about public health messages saying they're too broad, they're not individualised, but actually we have to provide something for the majority that's what we know um improves kind of health across the whole population um, we, and we we've seen lots of really good successes with that like salt reduction is a great example um i don't know if we're going to talk about reformulation so i might i might say that if we'll come on to it but um i think population level kind of public health as well means kind of things that are happening where we don't have to rely on every individual being highly focused on their food choices all the time because the food on the shelves are being made healthier, if that makes sense. So know what we've got enough to do every day to kind of be thinking, uh, you know, obsessively about what we're going to eat and making sure it's the healthiest version all the time. Like that's impossible. And it's not really um, a, a route that we want to kind of overly promote. But with public health, we can encourage kind of broader dietary patterns, which uh, means, you know, eating certain kind of foods 
more often and certain less often um, mm -hmm. over time. Um, so not prescriptive in any way, but then also with the public health policies, improving the foods on the shelf so that you're not then just getting a health benefit on those who are the ones reading the food labels, for example, but a health benefit across the board, if that makes sense, because yeah, not everyone is really aware of their nutrition. It's not a priority for some families. And, you know, there's lots of different things that are going on in life. So public health that, yeah, is meant to help, but with less kind of direct input and responsibility on the individual. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so well outlined. So thank you for that. I think it's it's just something that I don't think is in any way, like it's not in any way helped by the prevalence of dietary fads and misinformation on social media. I think yeah. that just just serves to confuse everything so much and leads people to distrust. I know like food, healthy mm. food pyramid plates and pyramids have their own, or healthy, yeah, healthy food pyramids and plates have their own critics. But at the same time, the yeah. broad levels of, of dietary advice and healthy dietary patterns within those are pretty great, yeah. you know, and if we were doing that, we'd see huge benefits at a population yeah. level. Yeah, exactly. And it's a big frustration that actually the guidelines get criticised because, you know, the population, we are seeing more um, food diet related disease. We are seeing an increase in that. Um, and so the guidelines get criticised. But the point is, we're not following, we're not doing the guidelines. Exactly. <laughs> in the first place. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I think oh, what I've been trying to figure out how to do is to do an Instagram post where like essentially I invert we we do we have a healthy food pyramid in Ireland as opposed to a plate we don't have the eat well plate the way you guys do yeah. um in the UK and just invert that and go look if we actually weren't doing if we had this the right way around we'd be doing yeah. pretty fantastic you know yeah. um we're doing it the wrong way around you're right <laughs> it's a challenge it's a challenge and it is I think it's something that I I think it's important and like I know we talked about social media earlier it does make the case in a way for having voices on social media as you said earlier to counter all the fads all the different things from carnivore to god knows what else is out there but yeah. you know to try and just keep hammering home those basics even if people are sick of hearing them they still have to sink in because we know we're still not nailing those yeah. yet. Exactly. And it's a huge challenge because when you go for the, as we know in nutrition, when you go for the the more, you know, the more balanced kind of <laughs> approach, yeah. you get as much airtime. And the media really don't help with this either because it's just not as interesting. There's not a hook. Um, yeah. So it will be all these, these fatty diets or extreme diets that, that get more attention, which is, yeah, we're forever kind of battling. <laughs> and you've done some great posts this year on different headlines that have come out like around certain studies. And I think just the way you kind of articulate how they've presented the data versus what the data is actually telling us. It, it's, it's, I'd really encourage people to have a look because, you know, we know the average lay person might not be able to, like, let's say, have a good uh, level of knowledge of like statistics and all that. But we know the media definitely don't have, unless depending on who you're talking to, some of the media yeah. that report different studies definitely aren't grasping the, me the message that really comes out of the study, you know. Yes, definitely. And it is hard to in a headline, but they are sometimes deliberately, you know, misleading. It's a bit of clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's important that we try and, uh, you know, kind of narrow them down a bit. And Jamie is really keen to kind of do that and share on his platform as well, which is great, because obviously he has a much bigger following. And if we can help people kind of understand or just provide a bit of reassurance, then that's really good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I think that one of the kind of bigger areas I want to touch on to finish with is just some public health nutrition approaches. And when I say approaches, I'm mostly referring 
to probably, I guess, reformulation and kind of fiscal policies. But people listening might have heard of of different measures that have been taken in Ireland or the UK, such as, like I say, fiscal measures like taxation on certain foods, um, measures to reduce sugar and salt in foods via a process called reformulation. And people will also have seen, I'm sure, like traffic light labels on different foods. Now, in Ireland and the UK, there's been different plans and strategies um, according to different departments of health to sort of regulate or reduce in particular sugar and salt content of of certain foods and particularly those that are more of the ultra processed kind that we've talked about. So first of all, Jenny, could you tell us what exactly food reformulation is and and why it is being encouraged and I suppose advocated for? Yeah, so reformulation is really about kind of changing the nutritional composition of a product. So for example, where we've seen the most progress in this is salt reduction. So companies were asked um, over a period of time to reduce the salt in their um, products. (laughs) So the reason partly for this is obviously we're consuming too much salt across the population. But a lot of the reason for this um, as well was, like I said before, it's people, if people, you know, they might, we might say that we know that we need to have less salt, for example. Um, and then when you start to ask people, okay, so what are you doing to reduce your salt? They say, oh, you know, I'm less, ta- less, I'm not adding it to my cooking, I'm not adding it to my food. But we know that a good kind of 70 to 80% of the salt that we consume is already in products. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, that will reduce some salt, but not the amount that we need. So the next thing is, okay, reducing salty foods where they're already salty. And then you ask people, okay, so where are you getting most salt from, you know, in your diet? And no one ever really knows the answer because the point is it's actually things like bread that were giving us the most salt. It's not the particularly salty foods, but those kind of foods that we eat more frequently. So this program was about looking at where we get most of the salt from in our diet and then across the board, getting all manufacturers to reduce the the amount of salt in their products. Now, what we saw from that was across, say, a 10 to 15 year period, um, salt reduce in foods. and there was a correlation a study published and it showed a correlation between salt reduction in foods um obviously salt intake reduction across then the population um a reduce in population level blood pressure and then also in heart disease as well we can right. only ever make yeah it's only ever like a, an association but the patterns are there and part of the reason is you're not relying on individuals necessarily to be checking the salt content of everything and um it's, but it happened across the board and because it happened across the board our taste preferences change with it. There's quite good data on that for salt reduction, that our taste preferences can change. Um, so no one really noticed because it was done gradually and over time. Um, so, so that is seen as a really effective public health measure. So in more recent years, I think it was announced in 2016, um, has been a sugar reduction programme. Um, so this means like salt, kind of changing the nutritional composition and taking sugar out of drinks and food and gradually reducing it. Um, with drinks, it's quite easy to do. Sugar doesn't contribute to the weight of the product. Um, you can replace the taste with sweeteners um, if we if they wanted to quite easily. Um, generally with sweetness, like the, the recommendation would be that if you're gonna use sweeteners, like don't match the the same level of sweetness that you had with the sugar because we do still want to kind of take change that taste preference over time and get people used to a sweet taste um in food it's harder to reduce sugar it contributes to the weight and therefore you have to replace the sugar with something and other um nutrients like protein for example contains the same amount of energy um as sugar so it wouldn't necessarily reduce the energy density the calories in a product 
but it would reduce the sugar, which is also not helpful for teeth, potentially could be less satiating. We know that the drinks anyway. Um, yeah. So it was still improving kind of the nutritional composition of the food with um, the food sugar the sugar reduction program in food it's in the categories nine categories that contributes the most sugar to the diets of children it's been a voluntary program similar to the salt reduction program but the salt reduction program had ind more independent monitoring so there was a lot of calling out of companies that weren't making enough progress and that put the pressure on we haven't had that with the sugar reduction program which is led by public health england and so we've actually seen slow progress um companies were meant to reduce sugars by 20% a sales weighted average the amount of sugar overall that they sell in products um, and the idea of that was that they hit that it would kind of get them to focus on their, their biggest sellers and then at population level that would have a bigger impact 20% um, reduction by 2020 the baseline was 2015 and mm. last year we had figures released and there was a 2.9% reduction that is lagging a bit so that will be from the year before but obviously because it's voluntary you have some you know um companies doing great things and others not doing much at all yeah. now we've always asked for it to be mandatory and regulated just so it creates that level playing field um where companies aren't penalized because they're doing the right thing <laughs> um and companies that, that are doing this reformulation they're all asking for this this um, regulation as well because they want this level playing field um but interestingly with sugar in drinks um, the, it, we've still had a reformulation program, but a mandatory re reformulation program, which has been in the form of, I guess, what people would have heard of is sugar tax. <laughs> um, yeah. And what its official name is in the UK, soft drinks industry levy. And it's mm -hmm. not a tax on the individual. It wasn't designed to be a tax on the individual, but a tax on the manufacturer. Um, meaning that if their product contained more than 5% sugar, then they'd have to pay a tax, um, a, a levy to the government. If it contained more than 8% sugar, then they'd have to pay even a, a higher tax. Um, so what this meant is that we saw the sugar removed and reduced in food, um, in drink, sorry, at an unprecedented rate. So compared to the 2.9% between 2015 and 18 it reduction in food, we had a 29%, so tenfold <laughs> um, reduction in drinks. Wow. Um, yeah, so that is obviously taking a lot of sugar out of our out of the nation's diet, which is um, really positive. So obviously the call to action now is to try and have more of these kind of fiscal levers and incentives um, for, for food reformulation, too. And I should just caveat quickly there. Some of the even though the, the tax isn't designed to be on the individual at point of sale, some of the. Um, big food um, drink companies that haven't reduced the sugar in their, their key kind of products, um, they are passing that cost on to the consumers. So instead of paying, so obviously they have to pay a tax to the government, but they're just charging more for their drinks. Now, okay. although that's not how it was intended, that's not the worst thing in the world because we still want them to create that price differentiation. So people are more drawn because it's cheaper to the lower sugar drinks and the higher sugar drinks. And that's how the tax has worked. Um, in other countries to be honest um but yeah ultimately it's to remove the sugar at source and we do know as well from what i've read that as regards like i suppose sugary drinks um or soft drinks the they are price elastic and what i mean by that is that as the price goes up the demand mm. or the buy the cost or sorry not the cost as the price of them goes up people do buy them less in favor of, of cheaper alternatives so i'd be right in saying that 
Yeah, so we know that cost definitely does have an impact on, on what we're buying. We've seen, um, we've seen examples of this in other countries as well, where it's come to the sugar tax. So, um, yeah, there is a place for that. But ideally, you know, we want it to, to impact the reformulation of the manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. And is there move like, would there be any, uh, is the main, trying to, how do I ask this question? The reason that was obviously a mandatory reformulation compared to the um, the food reformulation that you described as regards sugar. And it was that industry power, industry resistance, or was it just, I suppose, the decision by public health that it would be voluntary as a starting point? Or is there a thought they might make that mandatory later on if industry haven't engaged by a set date? Yeah, well, what we were promised is if they hadn't by 2020, then the government would consider other levers. That was the all kind of wording. So obviously the initial frustration around this was, but you've already had something called the responsibility deal for the previous five years, where, which was a, a set of kind of actions that industry could sign up to um, voluntarily, which just didn't work. So mm-hmm. we're like, do we really want to waste another five years when we know the voluntary programs don't work? And we were just told, you know, this is the approach that we want to take because setting up this kind of tax and legislation, it's argued that it's quite complex and it is like, it is more straightforward with drinks. When you start getting into food categories and just on like a legal side of that, it does get complicated. I'm not even joking to the point of the difference between, you know, a biscuit and a cake and what is a biscuit and a cake. And (laughs) there's lots Mm. of things going on. However, it did still, you know, we did still manage it with the drink. So it it shouldn't be that big a barrier. I think that government don't like to take that approach if they don't have to. So they prefer it to be voluntary. But now, um, you know, the evidence for the sugar tax and the versus in the drinks versus kind of a voluntary programme is just too obvious um, to be ignored. So we'll see. It's really difficult when your prime minister keeps changing. Yeah, <laughs> very true. It's been a tricky political time for you guys. Oh, my God. But who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. I mean, I know in Ireland uh, we have had the sugar sweetened beverages tax introduced in 2018, I believe. Um, yeah. And I know there was a health impact assessment conducted before that was introduced and the health impact assessment being, um, in case listeners aren't aware, essentially a, a sort of a, a process through which the potential health impacts um, across the population and in particular looking at those you know, who um, are of lower socioeconomic status, it, like what the health impacts are of introducing something like a taxation on, on particular beverages. Um, and that is freely available if people want to read it. It was published in 2012 by the Institute of Public Health. And I suppose it's to emphasise as well that these things aren't done and these measures aren't introduced without a really deep dive into the evidence behind them and a really hard look from other countries, um, you know, and from other public health bodies of, of what has worked and what will make positive impacts at the population level. Yeah, definitely. There's always lots of modelling studies done as well. And it's difficult because without having these policies, it's hard to, you know, to collate all the evidence on them. So so that's why modelling studies can kind of, um, the theoretical ones can play a huge role. And and lucky for us, if other countries have done something that works, but we were the same country that, sorry, we were the first country that's kind of taken this approach with the manufacturer and the reformulation. Um, And I do kind of think sometimes we need to get going on these things because otherwise, why should we be the last country to get things done waiting for their evidence to work? Um, But generally, yes, obviously you need to build a good case for it and, the, the case with the sugary drinks was the fact that sh- um, sugary drinks were the biggest contributing source of sugar um, to the to the diet um, for a start. Um, and just the fact that um, 
yeah, it did, like very limited or no nutritional value really to the majority of the population um, for these drinks. So, you know, less of a risk to, to reduce the sugar. But yeah. um, the, the, how I guess I, I'm quite interested at the moment as well in just thinking about there are targets around kind of reducing population level of childhood obesity and also you know we try and talk that much more in kind of um increasing percentage of kind of healthier weights or moving to healthier weights but what I'm just thinking about a lot is you you get people who who criticize sugar tax who be like there's no change in obesity levels and this has been kind of implemented for a year well it's never ever going to have an impact that quickly and also no because of the way that um we measure like obesity levels at population level um we could see reductions in body mass index for children um gradual reductions for example or we could see a step you know stabilizing which for a lot of children that's good if it's just not increased you are obviously above a healthy weight um but it might not be from you know a, a level of obesity to a level of overweight it might be still within category but still kind of um, they are reducing levels of adiposity and that is kind of healthier overall so I think some of these kind of hard targets make it all a bit kind of tricky as well but yeah overall it is it's it's not it's definitely about the nutrients we're getting into our diets plus teeth as well with sugar that's a big area yeah we all forget our dental health but yeah. we have to have these guys in our mouths for a long time and we do have to look after them because I suppose mm. it's kind of like the that invincibility um sort of uh perspective if you if there's something wrong you're going to take it for granted and then later down the line when there is something going on or this caries or dental you know work that needs to be done and you're thinking well why didn't I make that change earlier or why didn't I know that you know these foods were affecting my teeth we all forget about our teeth but yeah exactly exactly and it is one of the largest I think it is the largest cause of preventable hospital admissions for five-year-olds tooth um decay and tooth extraction yeah wow wow (laughs) Um, oh my gosh well, Jenny, so we've talked about a lot and I think what I'll do is to um, kind of bring this episode to a close. It's been so interesting and I could honestly talk to you for probably another half an hour, if not more. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. Um, I'd love to know where do you see public health nutrition going in the future and where would you like to see it move to? I know you've um, recently been part of the launch of the Bite Back 2020 campaign, which listeners should definitely check out um, the Instagram for if you haven't. But where would you like to see this area going in the future? Yeah, and I think that's a good point to raise because actually, so the Bite Back 2030 is really like... 2030, a, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of aims for this year. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really a, a movement which um, is led by young people, like young voices, because what we know, even in research as well, is that often young voices are missing, like the lived experience. So we might have like modelling studies or, you know, different types of research showing impact, but we don't always get that kind of lived experience of what is it that is contributing to the way that we eat? Like, what is it that young people are experiencing from leaving school to going home? Um, And so that insight is really, really important, which is definitely being built into research more um, in this area. They're doing a lot of City University in London around it, but also just, you know, the voices and listening to, to the youth. So that's what Bite Back is really about. And it's not about, you know, um, like you know complaining about food um as such we know that the food that is on the shelves it's there we're eating it 
Um, it's not to blame the individual, it's just what's there. But what is kind of being called out is the industry tactics. Um, like the big launch campaign was around marketing and the impact that that has um, and how, you know, we could be less kind of influenced to have the, the less healthy stuff. And that's really, really important. So, yeah, so that I think getting that kind of youth voice and perspective um, into this whole kind of conversation as well is important because I think policy happens to people rather than with people a lot of the time. Um, Very good point. Yeah, so I think that, that that will definitely be kind of an area that we'll be focusing on. And also just to, for things not to happen in silos so much. So we know that um, it was published recently, but we've had public health approach to reduce malnutrition. We've had public health approaches to reduce obesity. They've all been very separate. A lot of the time we're actually seeing, you know, people with obesity, but also malnourished. But also if you have them both separately, one might not help the other either. Um, so definitely look at a kind of a more joined up approach going forward as well. Absolutely. I'd love that. Sounds brilliant. And I think if people haven't seen the Bite Back 2030 launch video, that was mm. fantastic. That was really fantastic. Um, Eye opener. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on to the Irish Balance podcast. I always finish my episodes with guests with um, a request from my guests to um, ask them to give the listeners one thing they could do to bring a little bit more balance into their lives and it might be something totally unrelated to food it might be something that you find helps get a little bit of balance into your life um but I'd love yeah. to hear just one thing from that you find helpful I don't really um okay on the spot I'm thinking like the thing I always talk about which is obviously not my area is sleep I feel like sleep yeah. is like really underestimated it's sort of like the harder we work the later at working or the earlier we're getting up for the gym or whatever it is seems like this idea of kind of being healthy and successful and I just think that often it can be the opposite if we're not getting enough sleep so yeah my thing is always to prioritize sleep and you know I'm no good at it <laughs> I have to say a typical person who's like scrolling through the phone when they're um, wondering why they can't get to sleep so something I definitely need to work on as well but something we should all talk a bit more about I think Oh, it's so true. I was giving out in work yesterday because it's been really, uh, it's always raining in Galway where I live at the moment, but it's been very wet and stormy and I live, I have an attic room. So I've woken yeah. up with hailstones the last two nights and I've been an absolute bear in work because I haven't yeah. been sleeping and I slept no, well last it. night. New woman today. Like it really is a foundation. It does make a difference even in what you're eating and everything. So yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on to the Irish Balance podcast. I've been, I've so enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad we finally got to do it. Could you let yeah. people know where to find you on social media or if they want to get in touch with you and anything else you'd like to flag um, that's coming up? Yeah. So my tag on social media is hello, healthy you. Um, yeah. I don't have anything glamorous coming up. <laughs> <laughs> the daily grind Kira. but the daily um, yeah, grind. <laughs> that would be great but yeah I've really enjoyed the conversation as well so I could go on about this topic for ages and ages so I know same. we sure look we'll see what people think we might get a we might get a part two in the diary before the middle of the year or yeah. something like that great. thanks so much for coming on Jenny it's been great to have you and guys if you do enjoy this episode please do let myself and Jenny know you can let us know on social media through Instagram probably is the best way to reach us or you can leave a comment on the podcast and of course give Jenny a follow um at hello healthy you thanks a million Jenny and thanks for listening guys and I'll see you guys on the next episode bye